So last week, we looked at the church in Antioch and uh, how the mixed church of Jews and Gentiles managed to come together pretty powerfully. And despite their godless heritage, we saw that the Gentiles of of the Antioch church were able to become every bit the believers the Jews knew to be. The church in Antioch became a truly authentic expression of the body of Christ. And the locals in Antioch called them Christians because of how convincing and genuine they were in their faith. But now we're going to skip out of that line of thought because Luke is turning his attention back to Jerusalem in our next passage. The last few passages have seen three streams of church history sort of marry up and they'll all meet up and intersect at AD 46. And we've seen the life of of Saul, his conversion and how he went up to Tarsus, then joined Barnabas in uh, Antioch and then came down to Jerusalem. That's AD 46. Then we see, and we see obviously Barnabas, Antioch church forming, Barnabas going up there, encouraging the church, finding Saul, and then they come down. So there's two streams there. The other one is obviously Peter. He's been to see Caesarea and Joppa and now he's back in Jerusalem and so we're going to step back to AD 44 for this particular part so that everything comes up into a nice neat bow for our next installment of this series. While all the Antioch stuff has been going on the church in Jerusalem has had its hands full and uh, so here we go we're going to pick up the story again in Acts chapter 12. So the year is 44 AD the text is Acts 12. We're going to start with verse 1. We've got a bit of Bible to go through. So if you get that in front of you, it's on the screen if you need to follow. And uh, let's get into this. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying for God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put your clothes on and your sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The angel told him, and then Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was merely seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself. And they went through it. And when they had walked, walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. When Peter came to himself and said, Now I know I'll, without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to the answer of the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your minds, they told her. When, they kept, when she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet, and he described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and he left for another place. 
In the morning there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He'd been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not a mere mortal. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. There's a lot in that, isn't there? <laughs> now, Luke takes us into another story of persecution in the Jerusalem church, but this time it's not the Sanhedrin pulling the strings. The man we've just re- read about here is known in history as Herod Agrippa I. He was born in 10 BC and he's the grandson of Herod the Great, who, of course, was the king who tried to kill Jesus in his infancy. It was Agrippa's uncle, Herod Antipas, who was present and involved in the trial of Jesus, and he died a few years after that point. Agrippa grew up in Rome and had a pretty dotted past, including loads of debt and troublemaking. He was actually imprisoned by Emperor Tiberius, but he gained favor with the following emperor, emperor who was Caligula. And that guy actually released him, gave him a pardon, and sent him to, to, to Judea as a ruler of the northern Palestine region. When Caligula died four years later, a long-time mate of Agrippa took over, and that was Emperor Claudius. And Claudius gave him rulership of the entire Palestine region, and this was equal to the territory that his grandfather had once had. Agrippa was known as a good politician and an outstanding speaker. In today's world, we would call him an absolute sleaze, or a member of enter politician party there for yourself. (laughs) But in his world, his smoothness got him a lot of favor with the people that he ruled, mainly the Jews. He made every effort to appear as devout as a devout God-fearing proselyte while in Israel. During the times of the first fruit offerings, he would also join the pilgrimings, pilgrims in bringing his own basket of produce to the uh, temple courts. When given the law to read in public, he would stand as he read. And this was the ultimate sign of respect, while other Roman-minded people would simply sit. History records that he even shed a tear once when reading a passage from Deuteronomy. The passage was Deuteronomy 17, verse 15. And this instructed that Israel should never have a foreigner rule over him, over them. And, and Agrippa was, in fact, an Edomite who was a sworn enemy of the, of the nation of Israel. As he wept publicly in that setting, history tells us that the people shouted in unison, You are our brother too. That's how well this guy had been, had, had, had snivelled his way into the hearts of the local Jews. But despite all the great appearances and warm receptions, Herod had an awful reputation as a really evil guy. A bit of research from a number of secular sources tells us that while he displayed all the trappings of Judaism while in Israel, whenever he went to Rome, he was anything but the godly man his immediate subjects thought he was. And like the whole line of Herods before him, he had no regard for human life or for the needs of others. He was all about elevating himself, and he would do that at the expense of anyone, and no price was too high to pay for that, even killing off his enemies. 
And as we read today, we see that he now has a political agenda to keep and a new enemy to destroy. And that enemy, he has decided, is the church. The arrests he makes are of James and Peter, both of whom were clearly at that point leaders in the movement of Christianity. Obviously, the other one was John, the brother of James. The James mentioned here was the other son of thunder. And Peter is, as I said earlier, fresh back from his touring of Joppa and Caesarea. We see that James has already been executed for no reason other than to draw pleasure from the Jewish leaders. And Peter is, looks like it's next on the block once the Passover festival time was complete. Jewish law required that no trials or punishment be dealt until this time was over. But you can imagine that throughout that festival, Herod would have been rubbing his hands together. He should have been observing an amazing solemn feast. He should have been observing in his Jew, Jewish way the time where the angel of, the angel of death passed over the people of God. It was like a huge thing. It was a massive thing for the Jews to, to stop and ponder. But instead, he would have been sitting in his palace, rubbing his hands together, knowing that a public trial and his execution he had planned was going to be his greatest political victory ever. Sadly, it's nothing personal. He's just doing what he does to get the votes. If the locals decided the church was a menace to them, then, for the sake of voting, for the sake of, sake of the, the favour of the people, he thought so too. Now, Luke is actually outlining a new form of persecution here. And it can well serve as a preview of what would be ahead for the first century church as they engaged in Gentile mission. All the persecution up to this point, including Saul, has been religious. It has been initiated by the Sanhedrin and driven by their belief that Christianity was blasphemy. But what we're reading about now is persecution that is secular and political rather than religious. It is therefore a good picture of worldly persecution against a movement of people who would actually dare to enter that secular, non-religious world and begin to challenge that secular, non-religious world to change their ways and follow Jesus. Suddenly, in light of that, the story of Peter, James and Herod becomes our story as well too. Peter is arrested and locked up in the most secure way they knew. Scholars suggest he would have been placed in what was known as the Fortress of Antonia. It's a military barracks named after the Roman leader Mark Antony. And there's a map of where it was located. You've got the Dome of the Rock, where that's the old temple site there. And uh, up to the northwest of that is the Fortress of Antonia on the outside of the courts there. Christianity had embarrassed the law enforcement quite a bit. It began with a fallout after the resurrection. A sealed tomb suddenly becoming empty would be a huge headache for anybody to work with, right? <laughs> but in addition to that, we read in Acts 5 that the apostles were all locked up and an angel had opened their shackles and freed them. And now with Peter's arrest here, this is Peter's third arrest, Herod's making it clear there is to be no mess-ups. He's locked tight in maximum security and he has 16 soldiers taking shifts to guard him four at a time. Herod is taking things really seriously here and he wants to cut the church off at the head so that the body would die. That's why he's got Peter and James and these guys there. The only thing he forgot to factor in there is that there is no actual physical head of the church of Jesus Christ, right? 
Jesus himself is the head. The body will never die. James is already gone. Peter is scheduled to be next. Everything right now looks bleak and hopeless. It looks like the end for Peter in this journey that he's been on. So with all that in the background, with the understanding of Herod, with all the different things going on and the timing and all these things, Luke now takes us to the responses of all the people that are involved in this story. First up, he talks about the response of the church community in the face of a secular persecution environment. The text tells us today that Peter was in prison and the church immediately committed to earnest prayer. The church was clearly in two minds, and they're the same ones we often have when we're dealing with problems beyond ourselves. Those two mindsets in play here are simply panic and faith. Who's been in that spot? You know, you've got a spot, you go, man, I'm panicking on the inside, but I'm trying to keep a brave face and pray on the outside, you know? I've got faith, but I am also know that, man, I'm not sure either. You know, that's where the church is at right now. The believers met up in the home of John Mark, and we'll begin reading about him pretty soon. He would be the author of the second gospel. He's a cousin of Barnabas, and he's soon to be a traveling companion of Paul. For now, he and his mother have opened their home as a central place for Christians to pray. And many in the church have gone there to pray for the situation at hand. How many know when you face a situation you cannot handle, we, can, we need to commit that to prayer, right? You know, when things will be honest, and even if they are, even if we think, oh, I can just handle that, no trouble, we still need to cover that in prayer. The minute we think we can do things ourselves is the, thing, the time we fail as Christians. It's in that environment that the persecution they are dealing with becomes a battle. On one side of the battle, you have the Roman army, the world's superpower in all its might, and it has full murderous authority given by the local king. And then on the other hand, you have the minority group, with no swords, shields, not even a massive force compared to the Roman army, but what they do have is a powerful force called prayer. The legendary scholar John Stott wrote that prayer is the only power that the powerless have. In that situation, Jesus always makes these battles a one-sided affair. He always turns those tables into his favor. The people are in a state of hopelessness. In fact, even when Peter knocked after his release, they dismissed the entity at their front door as nothing more than the spirit of their deceased friend. But there is still something in them that says they still must pray because God is bigger than the circumstances in their sight. It's an amazing picture of human faith and human frailty all mixed up in a one little bundle here. See, when we get cornered, when the world around us gets heavy-handed in response to our faith, our challenge is to hold fast to what we know to do. And that is to seek God and His will and His authority. The church knew that God was at work mightily in their midst and that even prison doors had opened in their recent memory. There was a confidence in them that caused them to turn to what they knew in their prayer. But of course, this wasn't without the inner conflict. There were some that were probably saying, is there any point to what we're doing right now? Is this having any effect? Is my prayer getting beyond the ceiling of the room I'm in? In the case of Peter in the prison cell, the answer was a resounding yes. So we see the response of the church. They get on their knees. 
That's the best response. When things come our way that we can't handle or things are getting come against the church, that's the best time for the church to get together and pray. But second, we see Peter's response in his imprisoned state. Now it becomes individual, not just us as a big, tough church group, but when we're on our own, how do we respond? As we get into verse 6, we see that Peter is on the eve of his public trial. It's unclear how long he's been locked up, but the festival was a seven-day event, and he could have been in, in any or all of that time. That's a pretty decent amount of time to sit and ponder your own mortality. If you had nothing to think about but how long your life was going to be, how overwhelming could that possibly be? That last night would normally be a jittery, sleepless night for any person anticipating their own death. Peter knew that he was going to be martyred too. In John 21, Jesus made that pretty clear to him. The only uncertain part of that prophecy was the timing. Was this really the time? Was his work done? So with all that in mind, how do we find him on the eve of his death? Sleeping like a baby. Just ask Jenny how deeply I can sleep. Very deeply. And then if you've got me and the two dogs, three of us snoring, it's like, it's just, it's a symphony. Not a pretty one, but it's there. (laughs) You know, some mornings when I had to get up early, I have about six different alarms to make sure I get up. You know, because I know how deep I can sleep. I love my sleepings, you know. But if I'm preoccupied or if I'm nervous or I'm excited or if I'm in any sort of state of angst, that's another matter again. We read here that the angel has to work hard to wake up a deep sleeping Peter. The text says he strikes him. The Greek word is patasso, and this means to actually give a blow with a hand, a fist, or a weapon. So it's not... It's, wake up! (laughs) This is an angel. This is a strong dude giving a force here. (laughs) Why is that? Because he wasn't waking up. The first bit's of... Peter! 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 Wasn't working. So he gets the fist in as well, you know? We see that the angel has to talk him through the whole dressing process. He's in autopilot here. Get some clothes on. Get your shoes on. Grab your coat. Come with me. And he's led through the various stages of security in the barracks and gets through the streets, through another gate that opens up. Finally gets into the center of town and then, and only then, he realizes that he's not dreaming. He said, there's a sense of peace in Peter here, despite the bleakness and chaos of his surroundings. Even the prospect of death wasn't worth losing sleep over. Philippians 4.7 tells us that the peace of God is one that goes beyond all human understanding. You could take the smartest brains in the whole world, combine them and get them to analyze the peace that you and I have through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they will never be able to actually comprehend what that is or define it. That's the meaning of that scripture there. The world would not understand Peter's frame of mind. And Herod would have been mortified to learn that the threat of death was not rattling his political prisoner. This was a peace that only Jesus could supply. 
You know, it's the same with us today. Despite the trouble that can come our way, there is a peace that we can draw from. It's enough to bring us to a place of full submission to Jesus and a quiet confidence that we are in the hands of Jesus every step of the way. We see this evident in Paul as well in Romans 14, where he says this, If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So if we live or die, we belong to the Lord. In other words, in other words it's all in God's hands. So Peter, the church responds with prayer. Peter faces his situation with the peace of God. And now we get into the response of God on their behalf. How many know we serve a faithful God? It is evident at the outset that Jesus was at work all the way through this story. Peter is imprisoned, but is supernaturally freed. The church, is, the church earnestly prays and their prayer is clearly answered. And although the believers most likely didn't ask for it, we see that God made an example of those that raised their hands against the church. Starting with the immediate hands that would shackle Peter and eventually deal the fatal blow. Guards who lost their prisoner would face the punishment reserved for the prisoner. Since James was beheaded, it can safely be assumed Peter was going that way as well. And there was a lot of political things around that too. The interesting thing is that Jewish law didn't prescribe beheadings. But their local customs had reserved this sort of death for apostates and for those who were held in the greatest disgrace. So Herod was playing the Jewish political card here by claiming that Christianity was a disgraceful and removable expression of Judaism. And he gained favor for killing James with that method, with that meaning, and with that mindset. But now the disgrace was turned upon the truly disgraceful. Herod had a chance to acknowledge God's hand in, the, in his prisoner's disappearance. He could have said, wow, that's a miracle. I need to stop and un- understand this. I need to stop and acknowledge this. But instead, he ensures that other people took the blame. And he kills off 16 innocent men. But as we keep reading, we see that his day would be coming as well too. But even then, in God's grace, there would still be one more chance to give glory to God. The passage then takes us out of Jerusalem and back to the administrative capital of Caesarea. And it's here that he is required to address an issue with his Phoenician neighbors. Tyre and Sidon counted on produce from Herod's kingdom. The Galilee produced corn, and Tyre and Sidon counted on that corn for their food supply. It was a big thing of their staple diet there. For whatever reason, Herod has been holding trade sanctions against them and not allowing them to access this much-needed food item. But they're able to arrange a meeting, and they get an address from Herod, and it's in that setting that he delivers one of his famous orations that he loves to give. Luke tells us that he was dressed to the nines in his royal outfit. He begins addressing the crowd and they get so caught up in his manipulative words that they begin to call him a god instead of a man. I've never heard that, thankfully enough. In, in his state of inflated ego, he goes along with it, but falls ill suddenly and dies quickly but painfully. The historian Josephus tells us that his royal garments were made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful, and that as he spoke, he shone so brightly that the people hailed him as a god in the sun. It was really full on. He writes that upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject this impious flattery. 
Josephus agrees that a severe pain rose in his belly and five days later he was dead. Luke tells us he was eaten by worms. A professor of surgery from Bristol University writes that intestinal worms can form a tight ball and cause acute intestinal obstruction. Another doctor I looked up suggested it could even have been an untreated kidney infection that resulted in gangrene from the inside out. In any case, we see in the first century there is both biblical and secular agreement in this matter that God brought judgment upon Herod because he would rather glorify himself instead of God. Now as I draw to a close, let's look at the last verse of this passage. The word of God continued to spread. In short, God wins. We see an amazing story in play here. It opens with death and imprisonment. And it ends with Christians vindicated and Jesus in full triumph. Many Christians give up their cause at the first sign of trouble. But our text shows some great things about solid Christians and their faithful God. Solid Christians remain poised in times when their faith gets challenged. They turn to the one true fighting power they have in prayer. And they remain somewhat rested and peaceful because something far greater than themselves is watching it all go down. Peter knew that either in death or in life the Lord would vindicate him. Paul held that view. All the apostles held this view. It didn't faze him which option the Lord chose to work either. All he knew was that in all things God was in control. And the church backed that understanding up as well. Even though they thought Peter may be dead already, they didn't stop praying. They recognized that a greater evil was at work and that the best form of warfare was done on their knees. And of course, the best part of the story is that God did not let them down. You see, we need to understand two things that are certain when you pursue a faith in Jesus Christ. One, not everyone in our world is going to like it. There will be opposition. There will be times where our faith and convictions will be challenged. Our view on life will be challenged in the media and on the political scene and in our workplaces and in our classrooms and any setting of life. Sometimes it will be made very public. And rest assured here, if it's not the issue of gay marriage, it will be something else. They will look for something to hammer Christians about. But in the end, there will be a second certainty too. Despite the best the world can dish up in trouble and strife, it will be no match for the power of God. He will have the last laugh and the final say. The hassles we receive in this life will be addressed by the Lord. And it will be up to him on exactly when. Our position is simply to trust him in all things as we go along. If trouble and strife comes our way, muscle it out because Jesus will be faithful in our lives, both here and in eternity. Let's bring the communion table in if we could. Um, yeah, Thank you. Just bring that front. Let's bring the emblems front and center here. Now, with all that rattling around in our minds, we now come into a time of communion. And I guess the, the context of communion now will make us stop, really stop and think. 
In the Gospels, we read about the bold ambition of James and John, the sons of thunder, and how they wanted to be at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in heaven. You remember that story? Some, some, of the, some, of the, some of the stories say that they're just arguing about themselves. Other times say that one of the gospel says that their mum steps in and asks for them. That's, that's, that's tough and brave. And Jesus asked them if they could drink the cup that Jesus would be drinking. Are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink? And they said, yeah, we are. They had no clue what that exactly meant at that time we do the communion table causes us to identify with Christ in so many levels it identifies with the restored relationship we have with the father through the cross it identifies with the unconditional love of Christ for us it identifies with the way he betrothed himself to the church with absolute sacrifice it identifies with the curse of sin broken in our lives it identifies with so many things that turn out incredibly good for us. But it also identifies with his suffering. And the challenge that faced John and James as they stood face to face to Jesus extends to us today as well. Can we drink the cup that he would go through? Can we not only live in the freedom, but also live in the suffering that comes with identification in the name of Jesus Christ? Through our relationship with Jesus and our knowledge of Jesus, there is a life abundantly, life to the full. But there's also the cup of suffering that can come with that as well. There's persecution. There's, there's, there's things that will come our way that won't be really comfortable. But when we, our faith is an all or nothing faith, isn't it? We get into this thing warts and all. We get into this thing in life or in death or in trouble or in not. We come into this faith with an all or nothing heart. Because Jesus gave himself to us. Gave his complete all. So we're going to take some time to identify with Christ again in the life he gives us. And you know what? We're in a blessed country. The strife and trouble we face is quite minuscule compared to the rest of the world. But we also identify that sometimes it won't be so nice. That there will be people in the world that don't like what we have to say. There will be secular persecution that comes our way. And if we take a step and say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, we're going to be a bit of a heat magnet for that stuff. But we still come and say, Jesus, thank you. Because despite all the world can throw at me, my eternity is secure I don't care what happens in this life but my eternity is set you know that's what I love about you know I, I was watching the Christian channel last night and Brian Houston was talking about the, uh, the uh, bringing out the un- unfolding the, 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 the understanding of the, the rich young ruler and he just the, the big idea of his message was that the rich young ruler had his eye on all these temporal things whereas Jesus is saying no 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 if you want to be saved like you truly asking to be Sell all that off, get riches in heaven and follow Jesus. Follow me. Pick up your cross and follow me. That's ultimate identification right there. You know, let's, let's 
come without abandonment and say, Jesus, I'm all yours. I'm all yours and I will hold nothing back in my life. And if trouble comes my way, so be it. But if I live peaceably throughout the whole of my life, you know what? The two sons of thunder, one died fast by the sword. The other one lived for many, many years. Died in his old age. But again, boiled in oil, stoned, attempted killings, different things along the way. But at the end, he still said, you know what? His dying thing was love each other because that's the Lord's command. That's a guy that never lost his resolve. Both the sons of thunder drank the cup that Jesus prescribed. Let's take come When you're ready, come forward, receive the communion. If you need to be served, we will have our stewards and some people come and help you if we can have some of the gentlemen or somebody come and help with that. You know who the church... We're all church family here. You know who to serve here, guys. But let's come in at tour time. Steve, if you can come up, you can grab your first bit and then when we're ready, we can... um lead for a couple more songs of worship but let's pray and then we'll get over we'll um, have a more of a time of worship after communion